You guys install the fences, right? The electrical ones that will shock the dogs? Yeah. Now, uh, my wife owns a babysitting, and she has the kids in the backyard. And we wanted to get a fence installed and have uh, some collars put on the kids so they don't go in the street. I want to know who can do this and who can do it now and effective immediately. Yeah, we cannot do that. Now, well, you can put the fence in. You don't have to. I mean, this is between you and me, me and you, hopscotch. We tested it out on the one kid. We strap one on him. He runs around. He has tongue in his mouth and uh, like a dog, kind of, sort of. You know, he goes through the fence. He's blasted with a shock and he runs back in screaming. Right. Well, we can't do that. Legally, we can't. If it's good for a dog, it's good for the kids, right? Dogs are a boy's best friend. That's correct. But... No, it's a man's best friend. That's not correct. And what I want to do is have it running all zigzags under the ground so it confuses them. So, you know, they're going to be shocking. It'll keep them in line. Right. We'll see. The only thing is, if you were to do that for children, you can be taken to court. But, 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 but you're forgetting the main objective. No one's going to know. I had people yelling at me as they were sitting in their living room because they could see through the front door, like, get off my lawn and dogs chasing me. It was just ridiculous, you know, but it was something that I felt like that was the only way to get the phone to ring. I was again in my 20s and I had this like dream in my head, this vision that I would be this Jimmy Buffett junior guy who could fish and hang out on the beach and, you know, boat. Turns out I probably could have opened in Wichita because... There's no time for boating and fishing and beaching when you're building a business from the ground up by yourself. One of the things my mother said to me was, Ron, not only do I think this is a crazy idea, you've never even cleaned your room. Why would you start a house cleaning business? So I had made a lot of mistakes early on, but one of the bigger mistakes was... And all I really did was start telling people what I wanted out of life. I wanted to build the fastest growing, largest, most innovative residential cleaning service in America. I just would say that over and over to prospective employees, to vendors, to customers, to just people around town. And slowly but surely that would build and it would work. And I believed in it and other people started to believe in it. And we started to gain some momentum because of that. I'm Ron Holt, CEO and founder of Two Maids and a Mop. We're a residential cleaning franchise based in Birmingham, Alabama, and we serve 81 markets across the country today. Birmingham, Alabama, is that like in the United States? Yes, it's just south of everything else. <laughs> I don't know if you're our first Alabama guy, so that's part of the reason I love doing this podcast is just that there's all types of entrepreneurs everywhere, not just in Silicon Valley. You know, it's funny that you say that because I'm not originally from Birmingham. My wife's a Birmingham native, and that's part of the reason we're here. But I was a little bit resistant to building a business here. But it's turned out to be a sort of a blessing in disguise, especially in the industry we're in. I'll talk more about that later if you'd like. And so how old are you? I'm 46 years old, or young, I should say. Yeah, there you go. And Two Maids and a Mop is the name of your company? Yep, Two Maids and a Mop. As you would imagine, we clean homes. I would hope so, based on the name there. So can you give us a little bit more description or details about your company, like how many employees or revenue, or just give us an overview? Absolutely. So yeah, like I said, we have 81 markets and in, in growing. We've, we've got big plans to continue to grow in anywhere from 15 to 20 new stores per year. 
for the foreseeable future, we think we have an opportunity to really be in every market, which in our estimate is somewhere around 250 markets across the country. Currently, right today, we have over 1,200 people cleaning homes. We call them PHCs, which stands for professional house cleaners. We've got 1,200 folks out there all across the country working hard and cleaning homes and providing a great customer experience for our folks. Were you a maid growing up and you just decided you wanted to build this business? Far from it. I can still remember the day that I talked to my parents about this idea I had in my head. For whatever reason, I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur right out of college. And not that it was really in my family tree or anything, but I just had this burning desire to start a business. I was this you know, idiot 20-something-year-old. I really just had a dream. And I've been working inside this laboratory of all places. I have a biology degree from UGA, which, as you know, is the best football school in America. There's not a lot you can do with that degree. But I found a job inside a laboratory in Atlanta and was doing okay. I was one of the few people in the lab that could actually like say good morning and hello and how are you? And that allowed me to kind of rise up the corporate ladder pretty quickly. But I just never really loved the idea of rising that corporate ladder, even though money was good and career path looked very strong. And so as I was working inside that laboratory, my wheels were always spinning about what business was I going to create later on down the road. And one of the things I learned inside that lab is this idea of recurring revenue. And for me as a biology nerd, I didn't really know what that meant. I'd never been to business school. So recurring revenue, I saw that you know, up close and personal inside the lab. We collected samples of you know, different specimens. We tested those and we would you know, send the results out and get paid. And we did that over and over again, just for a few clients. It was very powerful. And pretty profitable as well. And we didn't have to remarket. I just fell in love with the idea of recurring revenue. So I didn't know exactly what type of recurring revenue business it was going to be, but I knew that whatever business I started had to have that principle within it. And so that was sort of step one to finding my way into dirty homes. Step two was, was a little bit similar to that. Again, I'm a biology nerd. So I've always really felt that innovation and disruption are things that are important. You know, the technical side of a business was always really interesting to me. And so once I realized recurring revenue was the direction I wanted to go, it was pretty clear that the service industry was going to be the business I started. And so when I looked across the service industries, from professional services to business services to technical services to eventually consumer services, the residential cleaning industry kind of stood out pretty clear to me in that very few people wanted to be in it. High, high demand. It was, you know, 17 years ago, even not necessarily a luxury purchase. It started becoming more of a necessity. And yet very few people within the industry transformed it. You know, it was just really almost a side job or hustle for a lot of people. Why don't we take it year by year, if that's all right. So you graduated like 96? 97, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you graduated 97. And then how long were you in that biology company, I guess, making decent money, it sounded like? Yeah. So I was there for about eight years, roughly seven and a half to eight years. And so I recognized pretty early on that it was not a career I wanted. Again, rose pretty quickly through the ranks, started making a few bucks. I knew that I had to start a business for whatever reason. I came up with this big round number of $150,000. I still to this day don't know why I picked that number, but it turned out to be pretty spot on. And so that was the number I had in my head that I had to save before I could ever start my business. For me, the $150,000 was more important than all the fun stuff everyone else was doing. And so that was what I did pretty much throughout my 20s, is just save money, save money, and save money. And while I was doing that, I was kind of growing up and maturing as well as a person and as a business person. And it turned out to be, again, like a lot of things, blessing in disguise, because if somehow I had raised 150K when I was 23 years old, I would have not have known how to manage that, how to build a business. I needed some time to grow up. Yeah, you probably would have just paid off your football players like you normally do, right? 
Well, I don't know. It's just they run a fast 40. Maybe that's worth it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what I point out a lot of times too. I'm glad you had a number in your head because I think everyone has to have a target. And this is a lesson anyone can learn is like, what do you feel comfortable with? Is it a year or two salary if you made nothing or whatever, but at least just put a simple plan together, kind of like you are like, you don't need something super strategic to see like, Hey, if I have X amount in bank, what's going to make me feel comfortable quitting my job and starting my own business? So I didn't know a whole lot about business right out of school. I didn't have any formal training or education. And everything was sort of a blank canvas for me when it came to learning about entrepreneurship. So I got lucky. One day during lunch, the laboratory happened to be near a mall. And within the mall, there was a bookstore. You could buy hardcover books back in those days and read them. I got a question. They taught you how to read at University of Georgia? Well, in between the football games, we had to do something. So in this bookstore, I would just literally, that was sort of my nerdy lunch hour. I would go and, you know, have a bite to eat and then and go find a book to maybe pick up and read and maybe buy. And one of the very first books I picked up was about this guy named Warren Buffett, which everyone knows who that is, but I didn't know who he was at the time. He turned out to be this huge mentor to me that is still sticking around today, 17 plus years later. And so I read this book about Warren Buffett and I just fell in love with everything. You know, the guy's this Midwestern folksy billionaire and he just makes everything sound so easy. And I felt like I could also be Warren Buffett Jr. That's how naive I was, but it seems so simple, you know, just save money, work hard, make good decisions, make wise investments. And then, you know, you become this rich and famous billionaire. I actually did the exact same thing when I went in college and when I started my first job, really. It's like I'd buy a book or whatever and bring it and read it outside while I was eating a business book. And everyone else in the office is like, what's this guy doing? You know, and I'm like, just doing something called learning and reading, you know, <laughs> like I like learning and I'm learning from really smart people. These little steps and anyone can take to start learning, right, and implement. I mean, just do it during your breaks whenever you can. And I'm still doing it. You know, I mean, I absorbed everything back in those early days because it was, again, all brand new to me, but it's never really stopped. You're always growing. You kind of always feel young if you're always learning. I feel like I've sort of always had that mentality that I'm just going to keep learning. Now I'm very focused. I don't read fiction. You know, I don't read books that don't interest me. I only read the books that interest me. But man, when I find that interest and passion, I go all in on it. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Because again, those are little steps that anyone can take who has a job right now. So I guess, were you about 30 years old when you saved up enough and you told your parents you were going to quit this job? I was 29, I believe. And yeah, I can still remember that moment in time when I told them and they had these wide-eyed looks and they thought I was crazy. I told my friends. I remember even someone saying, are you sure this is what you want to do? <laughs> my supervisor inside that organization also came to me and said, this is a bad idea, man. You've got a great career front of you. They really wanted me to stick around. And they were great people. It was a great organization and nothing wrong with that business. But I just working for someone and being limited by the things that I could do in terms of creativity and the ambition I had to just sort of change the world. Can't really do that behind a corporate desk, in my opinion. And so I took the leap. I went all in and I went from making really good money to essentially making, well, not essentially to making no money. It should have been painful, but that shouldn't feel good. But man, it was one of the most exciting times of my life. Every day was full of energy. I was exhilarated literally every day. And you know, the first two years, I didn't just not make money. I lost money. I lost money every single day of the first two years. But yet it was one of the best periods of my life because everything was so new and exciting and the mountain was right in front of me and we're still climbing it. But man, it was, we were at the bottom 
as far from the top as you can get when we first opened. We actually opened on April Fool's Day of all days in, in 2003. So it, a lot of people said that's one big running joke for a few years there. So. With the holiday season quickly approaching, as you stock up on stocking stuffers for family and friends, don't forget to treat yourself as well. And take a chance on that idea for a business or side hustle you want to take from part-time to full-time. Today's show is sponsored by Teachable. Whether you have an offline business that you'd like to bring online or have a niche or passion you'd like to teach others, Teachable is here to help. Teachable is a platform that allows independent entrepreneurs and creators to build and sell fully customizable online courses and services. Join our over 100,000 instructors who have transformed their knowledge into world-class courses and have earned more than 500 million to date. To help you get started as a special offer for our listeners, visit teachable.com forward slash inspiration and enter your email for a free masterclass, walking you through the exact steps you take to create your own online school and start making money. That's teachable.com forward slash inspiration. Enter your email for a free masterclass again to help you get your online school started today. Looking to add a little Bitcoin to your retirement account? The cryptocurrency world can be confusing. And so how do you get involved? Well, if you're thinking of diversifying your portfolio towards new innovative investments, well, BitTrust IRA might just be the answer. Crypto assets present the best opportunity to build generational wealth since the discovery of oil. And Bitcoin has been one of the best performing assets of 2020 thus far. See, BitTrust IRA helps you seamlessly and securely add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys and nuclear bunkers with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7, 365 trading platform with no minimum investments and unlimited trades, plus a team to help guide you along the way if you have any questions. They also offer the lowest trading fees in the industry. So to learn more about BitTrust IRA and how they can help you invest in the crypto industry, just go to bittrustira.com slash millionaire. And for a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the signup fee for our listeners. And that's a $50 value. So that's bittrustira.com slash millionaire. B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash millionaire and so when you did that were you single and you're still in Atlanta just give us a little overview of your personal life at this point yeah so I had relocated to Pensacola Florida no family no kids and so it was a little bit easier then things are different today. I have two amazing kids. They're both young and a beautiful wife. And honestly, they depend on me to, to sort of pay the bills. And so it's a little bit differently today than it probably was back in those days. But that our franchisees that we go to partner with across the country, they come from all different walks and all different ages. And so I don't know if there's a perfect age. Obviously, it was easier for me because if I failed, I didn't have to hurt three or four other people. It was just me. But at the same time, I had prepared myself for that really negative cash flow period I knew I was going to experience. So that $150,000, while it didn't allow me to travel the world, it did allow me time to understand the business, the industry, and start learning how to build a model that was profitable. So why'd you move to Pensacola? 
I was again in my 20s and I had this like dream in my head, this vision that not only would I be able to become this Warren Buffett Jr. entrepreneur, but I also would be this Jimmy Buffett Jr. guy who could fish and hang out on the beach and, you know, boat. Turns out I probably could have opened in Wichita because there's no time for boating and fishing and beaching when you're building a business from the ground up by yourself. <laughs> so that, and then I guess, you know, a pretty close second to that was I wanted to be in a market. I knew from day one that I wanted to build a nationwide brand. And I didn't feel like I could pull that off in Atlanta because it was clouded with so much money and so many other people that were trying to grab everyone's attention. Pensacola being a, a smaller city, I felt like once the growth started to occur, that I'd stand out a little bit more. Yeah. And so right when you quit your job and it was in Atlanta the whole time, right? You went straight to Pensacola. So you made a, like kind of two life changes, right? Yeah. I'd never been to Pensacola before. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's just... what I was wondering. I was like wondering what brought you down there, if there was family there too, or it makes sense what you said, but it's still, it's, you still had friends, I imagine in Atlanta. So I don't know if you had any in Pensacola or anything like that. Later on, met a lot of good people there, but no, I didn't know anyone in Pensacola and just sort of took a shot. All right. And so we moved down there and just walk us through those feelings and like what you did even the first couple of months when you moved to Pensacola and are starting two maids in a mop there. Sure. I can tell you the first day. So the first day had been all planned out. We had a couple of jobs. I'd done some marketing leading up to it. And I was so happy to have these two jobs. They were both 55 bucks a piece, which tells you sort of a sign of the times. But $55 is about, well, it's not even half of what we charge today on average. But we had two homes. Cleaned the first home. I was there sort of supervising these two you know, people as they were doing their job. And on the way to the second job, one quit, number one. <laughs> Why did they quit? So I had made a lot of mistakes early on, but one of the bigger mistakes was not really understanding the importance of, you know, fair compensation and how to treat people. And again, I didn't know how to clean a house. You know, I, we hadn't really talked about that. One of the things my mother said to me was, Ron, not only do I think this is a crazy idea, you've never even cleaned your room. Why would you start a house cleaning business? And so I didn't care about that part. I figured out later on. Turns out at the very first job, even though I marketed and sold and booked the job, I never really thought about what we were going to use as products and what type of process we were going to implement in order to clean the house. I just said, go, I'll talk to the homeowner and I'll walk around the house while things are happening and that'll be my job. And so she wasn't a big fan of my micromanagement, especially whenever I didn't really know what I was talking about. So that was part of that reason. Plus she wasn't paid that well. And then on the way to the second job, we're pulling into the house. We had this dramatic early resignation, but we had the second job and we get to the front door and the customer says, Hey, I'm so sorry. I forgot to call you guys, but I don't need you. We're actually headed out of town and I want to get out of here. And so I don't have time for you to be here for a couple hours. I went ahead and cleaned the house myself. So I'm sorry. We'll see you next time. And I was just devastated. I'm like, no way. This is my grand opening day and going to build this nationwide brand, you know, like almost crying. She says, well, you know what? How about this? I have this RV in the back. You seem kind of desperate. <laughs> How about cleaning that? And so we agreed to do that for the $55. And I don't know if we spent more than a half hour inside of it. We did collect the $55 and we had 110 bucks on that very first day of Two Maids and a Mop's first day in business. And so that was our first day after that. Well, one second. Was that net profit or was that revenue for the first day? That was everything, man. That was the revenue. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm wondering. Like your mates had to be underpaid. If you're charging 55 bucks, like the maxing, if you had two of them, maybe you're giving them 15 bucks a piece max. 
So this is going to make me sound like an old grandpa, but back in those days, minimum wage in the state of Florida was five fifteen an hour. That's what I paid them. And as you would imagine, they weren't real thrilled with that compensation package. So I don't even know you can call that a compensation package. Yeah. <laughs> Hourly wage. I don't think you can call that a compensation package. It's embarrassing to say out loud today. Looking back on it, not the wisest move, but you know, lessons learned. Hey, it gets you going. I mean, yeah, you, you don't know. That's why I really wanted to harp on all, especially you going on these early stuff because you had no business background or anything. These are important stories for everyone to learn from. So what was your next big day of revenue? We didn't have a lot of big days those first few weeks because I didn't know how to market and the internet was sort of in its infancy. It was still sort of finding its way. And so we didn't really utilize the internet for a ton of new work. And so we were using some old school stuff like newspapers and some radio ads and just direct mail pieces, door hangers. Like in, you live in Florida, you know how hot it is in the summer. And so I'm going up and down these neighborhood roads, dropping off door hangers. Are you like dressed up nicely too or no? Because I see your picture now, you know, it looks kind of more professional, but then are you like dressed up in decent attire walking around that hot too? I don't recall the exact attire, but it was not dressed up. I can tell you that. I had people yelling at me as they were sitting in their living room because they could see through the front door, like get off my lawn and dogs chasing me. It was just ridiculous, you know, but it was something that I felt like I was, that was the only way to get the phone to ring. You know, I didn't know what else to do. And so the first couple of years were just a circus to say the least. We didn't really have anything that made us different. We didn't really understand how to price properly. We obviously didn't know how to pay our employees properly. And we were just finding our way almost with blindfolds on because there was no help. You know, I didn't have a support team to really tell me how to do this. And I didn't know anyone else that owned a cleaning business. And so it was me uh, just trying to figure this thing out. Now, obviously we figured it out, but it was some tough times. I'll tell you, I would work six days a week, Monday through Friday. I would work from six in the morning to midnight. We had six to eight was these like commercial offices we would clean before they opened for business. And then from eight to five, we would clean homes throughout the area. And then from about 7.30 to 10.30, we had these chain of childcare facilities that I would help clean as well at night. And then I would head back to the office. And by the time I'm home, it's midnight. And on Saturdays, it's the beach, you know, so we had these vacation rentals on Saturday and I had Sunday off, but that was my life for the first couple of years. And not only had to work hard and do all those crazy things, but at the end of the day, I lost money as I was doing that. And so it was hard, a lot of sacrifice. And there were definitely some moments where I thought, did I make the right decision? But for me, you know, it always kind of goes back to books, but I'd read this great book called Good to Great. Everybody knows probably Good to Great by Jim Collins now and a lot of great tidbits in there. But the biggest that I pulled out of it was the idea of vision and how important a real big grand vision is to the future of any business, any organization. And so I knew I was working hard, but I wasn't really going anywhere. And so once I started thinking about the future and articulating what my vision for the future was, it was so crazy because it had nothing to do with X's and O's, but the life started to change. The business started to change. And all I really did was start telling people what I wanted out of life. I wanted to build the fastest growing, largest, most innovative residential cleaning service in America. I just would say that over and over to prospective employees, to vendors, to customers, to just people around town as I'm having lunch. And slowly but surely that would build and it would work. And I believed in it and other people started to believe in it. And we started to gain some momentum because of that. Where were your parents located? Because I know you told them before you moved down here to Pensacola to start the cleaning business. You said, where were they? Yeah, yeah. Because I remember, didn't you try to get their approval before you started this business? 
Well, not only did I try to get their approval, I tried to get their funding. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I was wondering too. That's what I was going to ask because I know you said you saved up 150000 and that's, I wanted to inquire a little bit more about that. Yeah, neither occurred. So they did not fund me, nor did they approve of the decision. They said, you're all man, so do what you want to do and got to do, but there's no safety net here. And at the time, it felt tough, you know, but looking back, I'm glad they did that because it really forced me to become a stronger person. It, I became, again, I was not, I didn't really grow up being this frugal cheapskate. I turned into that frugal cheapskate as I was growing the business and saving for it. That's really stuck with me for a long time. It's really helped me. It's helping today, even at the level we're at now. But yeah, they definitely throw in money saying, let me get on this train. Nobody was. I actually had this like barnstorming tour where I would go friend to friend that I thought I'd have a few bucks in their back pocket and pitch this vision of building a nationwide chain of residential cleaning companies. And no one was interested enough to invest with me. <laughs> but where did you grow up and where were they located? I was just curious, your parents. Yeah. So we were in the sticks, man. We were down in Southwestern Georgia, actually fairly close to Tallahassee, Florida, but not in Florida. We were about 45 miles North of Tallahassee. Okay. Gotcha. So I guess going to Pensacola too, were you a little bit closer to your parents as well? Yeah. Or about the same? Yeah. It was two and a half or so hours away. So obviously they visited and we were able to see each other a little bit easier than we were in when I was in Atlanta, but they reminded me over and over again when we would get together that- You made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably don't admit that today, but I can still remember those conversations. Yeah. Well, my mom still has those conversations with me about starting a podcast from doing commercial real estate. So how are things going, honey? I'm like, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I, like sometimes where you doubt yourself. I'm like, well, I did my commercial real estate business, so I could go back to that if I want. But I was just like, we all have those doubts. So that's what I just wanted to point out too. I was just wondering, again, the family structure and like where you were. But there's one other thing too, before we move on, I guess, from your starting experience and you know what you went over these first few years. You did at one point say that you obviously like we're going to start a service business in this cleaning business. And again, why was it this business? Like you obviously alluded to, and your mom pointed out, that's again, why I was trying to bring it around full circle here is like, why did you keep doing this and wanted to do a service business and a cleaning business here? Yeah. So the business itself, again, I just recurring revenue was a strong emphasis. It still is today. Any, I think that the best business opportunity there is, is a business that has recurring revenue within it. I've lived it for a long time. That was obviously one. Um, two, I didn't see a lot of innovations within the industry. And then three, I really felt like demand would be so much stronger down the road than it was at that time. There was a little bit of a tipping point occurring at that time. I sort of felt it as I was researching the industry. At the time, the majority of customers hired people to clean their home because they could afford it. They really just wanted it. They didn't necessarily need it. But I saw a few suburban families hiring people because they just didn't have the time and they had excess income and so they could pull it off. I felt that that would continue to evolve. I'd already seen what happened within the lawn service industry and, you know, you could drive past any neighborhood, you know, with a cookie cutter neighborhood. And there was sign after sign of lawn services were here today or whatever. And so I felt like if people were willing to pay for a lawn service, that at some point they were going to be willing to pay for a maid service as well. And so I saw this huge like tidal wave of demand growing and yet mom and pop operators comprised at that time more than 93% of the market. So I just really felt like there was going to be a real opportunity to build a brand, do something different and attack the industry in a way no one had done it before. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think just you even telling us that. So there was some strategy behind it, right? I'm just like, why does this guy just want to keep doing this cleaning stuff if after the first two years, it doesn't seem like it's working out and it's made quits on the first day and, you know, whatever. But you had an overall goal or saw a theme. And it seems like it made sense because, again, if both parents start working as well, they have extra money, right? And so it's not that much more just like, why don't I pay for someone to come over here for 50 bucks or 50 to 100 bucks to come clean my house? It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Look, convinced that really successful entrepreneurs are the most stubborn, maybe even dumb people in the world because we have to reject logic day after day after day. Oftentimes, you know, it just makes no sense. The decision to keep going forward. Think about it this way. When you have pain, when your leg hurts, you, you don't run. You know, when your arm hurts, you don't throw a baseball, you know, but in business, when you experience pain, you double down on that. You want more of it and you keep pushing yourself and you hurt more and you hurt more all because you think that that pain is going to at some point pay off. And so sometimes it does for people like me that, you know, have a really strong will and strong vision for the future. You know, that vision is strong enough for me to overcome all that pain that I was going through. And I tell people this all the time in the franchise world, that if you really want something, the game of business gives you the opportunity to get anything you want, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So many people you know, talk about these overnight successes and they occur. I mean, they, that's real life. It happens all the time, especially in today's world. However, the five, 10, 15 year journey seems to be a lost art. I feel like that is something that if you really had that type of sacrifice and vision, it's so easy. It seems so hard, but it's actually very easy because you just stick around, man. You just outlast everyone else. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the richest. You just have to outlast everyone else. And if you can do that day after day, even though logic says don't do it, then you're going to be successful in business if you pull that off. I know you said your first two years you lost money. Do you remember like how much money you had at the end of the first year and what your thinking was? Well, I don't know the exact first year. But I can tell you there was this seminal moment in my life, though, when I had finally, I made payroll. And if you remember, again, 150K was the number, right? And so that saved that 150. And that's what I'd used to sort of fund it. Obviously, we had some revenue coming in. And so it was offsetting some of the cash flow, but we still had negative cash flow every day. About a year and a half or so into the business, maybe it was even more than that, closer probably to two years, I made payroll on Friday. And this is like embarrassing when I say this out loud. I went to this like seafood restaurant all by myself on a Friday night in Pensacola. And I didn't really think I was going to have this like profound thought, you know, while I was there. I just was sort of hungry and wanted to break. And so I sit down and by myself and it hit me like, what the heck am I going to, we, we paid each other, we paid our employees every two weeks. Like, what am I going to do two Fridays from now? Like I sort of exhausted that 150. I started crying, man crying. And the waitress says, is everything okay? <laughs> and I say, oh yeah, I'm sorry. I had a rough day. Just leave me alone. You know? And so, <laughs> and so I got it all out and I actually called my father on the way home and he's actually since passed uh, since then. He said something I'll never forget. He's like, man, you know, you're the one who told us you had a dream. You're the one who told us that this was the decision that you believed in. And so nobody said it was going to be easy. In fact, you told us it wasn't going to be easy. It's up to you to go make this happen. So you got two weeks to figure it out. So go figure it out. Quit crying. And so <laughs> I quit crying and I don't know what happened, man. It was like some like magical thing happened. From that day forward, all we ever started doing was growing. Literally from that moment on, we hit bottom and just rebounded and started growing day after day. Well, do you think like you started realizing, hey, I need to generate more income and I need to go find more leads? Was that it? Well, I can tell you that. So 
it took me so long to save that money to start the business. And that should have taught me how to be a little bit more fiscally conservative, but I was not. Early on, I took a lot of chances on some things because for me, $150,000 seemed like, again, $150 million. So yeah, I could take some wild swings at some marketing ideas. And if I miss, who cares? I got 150K. Well, that turned on me later on because obviously, you know, I didn't make a lot of good decisions in those first couple of years. And as we got closer and closer to zero, my decision-making became better and better and my hustle became stronger and stronger. And so, yeah, that's what exactly what I did. In fact, that next week we landed this big contract. We had a church that we cleaned. I told the church, I was like, hey, if you can pay up front, you know, we'll give you a discount of some sort. And they agreed to that. That was one of the like tactical things I did just to sort of make it through. But ultimately, there was a lot of changes in the business model. This thing that we call the pay for performance plan sort of occurred around that same time. The pay for performance plan continues to this day to be what makes us different. It's what we call our purple cow. If you've ever read the book by Seth Godin called Purple Cow, it kind of teaches you that if you're different, unique, remarkable, then believe it or not, and you'll be unique and remarkable enough to stand out from a pretty crowded marketplace. And man, there's no more crowded marketplace than residential cleaning. There's a, another house cleaning person on the side. No matter where you turn, there's another one to hire. And so we created this pay for performance plan, which is pretty easy to understand. Every time we clean a home, we give our customers an opportunity to rate their level of satisfaction on a pretty simple scale of just one to 10. And that number by itself will directly determine compensation level for the two people who cleaned that house. And so we created that plan over the course of a few weeks, but it kind of happened after that man crying episode inside the restaurant. And that, along with a bunch of other things, uh, propelled us to just keep growing and growing and growing. I haven't read this book, but I think I've heard him even mention it. It was like Damon John, The Power Broke. I don't know if you've heard of that. And I have, yeah. Okay. I mean, like I said, I didn't read it, but I've heard him say it. And it only takes a couple seconds to understand. He's like, yeah, when you're close to broke, your back's against the wall. You have no choice but to figure out how to make money. It seems like this was at the point you were at. And if you could figure out a way to make sure your maids did an even better job by getting them a rating, then that's automatically going to lead to more chances or more opportunities with either the same people or they would also refer their friends if they did a good job. So it kind of aligns those interests, it sounds like. No doubt about it. Yeah. You make better decisions when your back's against the wall, in my opinion. That's worked well for me. Not that I've never been perfect and I'll probably make another bad decision today, but. Well, you did this interview, so that was your bad decision. <laughs> we'll see afterwards. <laughs> so this was after, the, I was basically year two, you were saying when you had the crying fest at the seafood restaurant? Exactly, okay. yeah. So going that point forward, I guess you're about 31 at this point, right? When this change happens. So just walk us through even that next year or two that, again, we're about year three or four in the business and just trying to figure out what happened and how it grew. Yeah. So it started to really take off. Like I said, the vision of building this nationwide brand was strong. I talked about it out loud to a lot of people. It was front and center. You know, it was even written an article about it in the local paper about how this idiot residential cleaning guy was trying to build a nationwide brand from a 250 square foot office space in Pensacola. That became a really guiding force for us. The pay for performance plan I just talked about also was really an important step toward that growth because it was a pretty clear motivational plan for our employees, but it's also a very unique selling tool. And almost every time we said it, if not every time we said it, customers ate it up. Like we started growing like we had never thought we could grow. I mean, we couldn't keep up with demand, honestly. I mean, yeah, even as a customer, maybe you didn't mean for it to be a marketing ploy, but it's like, 
okay, if I'm a customer, I'm like, okay, I only pay them for whatever performance. That's a good marketing hook. And I also wanted to mention too, I do like the point that you kept bringing up that you kept telling everybody that you plan on growing a national business. And that made your business newsworthy, that you had this vision that everyone could jump on, like between being in the paper and then saying this pay for performance thing, I could see how that could obviously help and you grow here. Right. And it was really what, now I will say that pay for performance plan only is controls employee wages. The customer rates are not variable. They pay this a fixed rate. So we implemented the plan discussion within our sales script. So when we would receive an incoming call, then we would talk about it pretty quickly within that conversation. And literally 90% plus at the time, we would convert that lead into a paying customer. And so it grew very quickly because again, demand was there. And customers liked it. Employees actually liked it. They even made more money because of it. And we started growing, growing so fast that I said, Hey, it's time to tackle number two. And so we opened our second store. You'll probably know these communities since you're in Florida, but we opened our second store in Fort Walton Beach, which is near Destin, Florida, about 30 miles away from Pensacola to the east. That was an experience because it was the first time that I was split in two, you know, and, and it, there were some growing pains with that. It turned out pretty well for us. Well, what was the biggest growing pain? Because people right now listening could be experiencing that, like wanting to do a second location 30 miles away, but scared to do it. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And so the marketing machine behind the plan was so strong that revenue was growing. When we opened the second store, eventually even the third store, revenue continued to grow and grow and grow. So from the outside looking in, everything was going very well for us. What I didn't realize until the end of the year is that even though we had very similar top line results for the multiple stores, the bottom line results were all over the place. It was completely fragmented and you don't want fragmentation anywhere, certainly not in a business model that you want to scale. So I had not really thought about this idea of system or process before. It seems so boring and so meaningless because all I cared about was booking new jobs. Again, a book kind of showed up called The E-Myth that I read, and it was just talked about this idea of how you could systemize a business. And if you do that, it's not just a boring set of protocols. It's actually a way to create a uniform business model that creates consistent results. It made sense to me. And that's what we did. We just basically sat down on a, on a conference table for a, several weeks, really, and built our systems from the ground up and stopped just sort of living day by day and making decisions on a whim. Uh, we became a very process-oriented business. And sure enough, just like the book taught us, not only do we have a strong marketing machine, but all of a sudden we had this very uniform bottom line performance as well. And so that to me was the biggest thing that I learned is that big a vision as we had, as anyone may have when it comes to multi-unit business growth, you cannot do it without process. For an entrepreneur, process, that word sounds so boring. It's actually a pretty important thing that you can't live without. You know, there's not a business out there that scales that doesn't do it without process. And this is 2005, 2006, like it's right when you opened that second location. I just want to make sure we keep the year straight. Yeah, it was mid 2000s. Yeah. Okay. And it is boring. Let's not beat around the bush as far as doing processes, right? Like especially if you're an entrepreneur, you cared about the sales. It's fun getting, you know, revenues coming in, right? And it's like, no one really wants to do it. But again, it's kind of like going to the gym. If you want to get in shape, you kind of have to do it or eating healthy, right? Especially, like I said, from an entrepreneur standpoint, but if you could hire someone who's good at that stuff, that's even better, honestly, you know, but at one point or another, if you want your business to grow, the systems are the way. You know, it's funny you say that because that's exactly what we did. We brought in experts on administrative work. We brought experts on cleaning. 
we even brought experts in on like uniform, like a fashion expert, because we were all over the place. You know, we're in the South. So what we would do when we opened stores early on is we wear jean shorts everywhere, right? We didn't do that. That's just Gator fans. But we were red and black early on. We're now pink and white. I, I guess you can probably infer why we were red and black <laughs> early on. But in case most people don't know, because not everyone follows college football, red and black is Georgia colors. And in case anyone's curious, Florida and Georgia are big rivals. And I went to University of Florida. I want to make sure everyone's on the same page because it's a worldwide audience. They may like, be like, why is this guy so hard on Austin, you know, or Austin hard on him? <laughs> That's why. It's fun though. It's mostly just fun banter, hopefully. Yeah. So we brought those folks in and they like lived with us for a few weeks and we sort of created these processes that we didn't really have before. And I love fun in the sun, right? That's part of the reason I moved to Pensacola. And so I was not only the architect of these systems, I was also the author of our operations manual, which we were going to use as sort of the Bible for our business model. But I knew I needed some time away to actually write this book because it was a real book, 300 plus pages long. I had all these notes from weeks of meeting with these different consultants and again, admin and fashion and cleaning and so on. And I went down to the Bahamas for two weeks. I was fortunate to have a couple of great managers in place that could kind of take over the reins and run day to day. I just, you know, I had some fun in the sun, but mostly what I did was just write. And so I took those notes, built our first ops manual, brought it back to the States. You know, believe it or not, we still use about 85% of that today in the operations manual for our franchisees across the country. I do like the point of sometimes you just have to get away right? To refocus on that. Cause if you would have stayed in Pensacola and probably tried to done it, you probably like been doing a half ass, you know, like as far as probably still going into the office, doing all this stuff versus it's okay to step away. If you can from time to time, that's always when you get new ideas, I think. Absolutely. It, it was invigorating. You know, it allowed me to sort of get more energized, but it also just gave me the time. Like you said, when you're, even if you don't go into the office, you're still mind spinning. You're wondering what you can do. People know you're nearby, so they're going to call you for help if they need you. And so that was happening. And so I said, I got to pull away. If I'm going to build this into a nationwide brand, I got to suck it up for a few weeks and do this. So I sucked it up down in Nassau, Bahamas. Well, nice. And then so from there, you come back, you have three locations here. And like, what is revenue like at this point? That's a great question. I should, probably should look back to, to see, but we were doing about a half million dollars in revenue on average per store. Oh, wow. Per store? Yeah. So like I said, the revenue was strong. And so, yeah, what were the profits from like each individual one? So we can see that what you're talking about as far as the issue. So we were in three stores. One of those half million dollar stores made no money. The other made a little bit. In Pensacola, the original one made a lot of money. It was this weird dynamic in that you had very similar revenue levels. That is super weird because too, is like what you're saying, a service-based company, like you think you'd have a pretty good profit margins, right? When you're talking about service-based as well, versus if this is a product company and you're barely, maybe you're making 10% margins or something like that, or even 5%, but like to have made store make zero profit. And then you said your original one sound like it was making a couple hundred at least. No, more like 150 or so. Okay. But still, yeah, that's a huge swing. I just want people to understand like the differences, even though they're all sense of revenue, what really matters is that kind of the profit margins at the end of the day. Yeah. So that, in our world, probably a lot of service-based worlds, labor is a huge part of the cost of doing business. And so we, our labor costs were through the roof in one market and they were held in check in other markets, you know? So we had to figure out a way to fix that. I mean, that's took process. It just didn't happen. It took having expectations and rules in place for labor to be consistent day after day. 
And so what fixed that? Just your manual or was there like one main thing? Again, so people who might have service-based businesses with labor costs being the main thing, what they could look out for? Yeah. So, well, you know, our case is probably unique. It may not apply to everybody. You know, we had to pay for performance plans. So their, their wages were always dependent on revenue. You know, it was a sort of a cut, almost a commission of their revenue, but the, that cut was based on a one to 10 rating. And so it could go up or down, you know, obviously we had to pay minimum wage and things like that. But outside of that, it was very variable. Well, that only works when you have a consistent revenue base. And so for team members that worked for us that did not have a full day's worth of revenue, their paycheck, even though it was variable and they wanted to work hard to make money, the cut wasn't strong enough. And so we would supplement that with extra compensation because we didn't want to upset them. We wanted them to stick around. You know, we didn't want to lose them. When you do that, that money, typically when you pay somebody, that money comes from revenue you earn from a customer. But in this case, it wasn't being earned from a customer. Those things were being done that I was not even aware of until after the fact, after we'd already you know, cut the payroll checks. That may seem like a simple thing, and it is pretty simple and kind of embarrassing when you look back on it. But at the same time, it was happening because there were no rules. You know, People were just sort of making it up as they went. And I was so pulled in so many different directions, I couldn't see it until it was too late. Because I mean, even from the manager's standpoint, if they got one of those branches, you kind of understand their point of view too. It's like, you don't want them to leave and start their own cleaning thing. So that's why you're giving them more. But really at the end of the day, you kind of needed more jobs in that market in order to, for it to work, to get the profit that you needed. Absolutely. Yeah. So from there, how about walking us along, I guess, over the next few years, what happens? Yeah. So life got real good after that. So we had those three stores in Florida. We opened a fourth store in Birmingham, Alabama, which eventually became our headquarters. And then over the course of about three years, opened 12 stores across five different Southeastern states from the Carolinas to Florida. Man, it was so exciting. Every time we would open, it would just skyrocket. All the stuff we had dreamed about was happening. The pay for performance plan was working. Demand was there process was in place. And so we had consistent uniform bottom line results. And were you a hundred percent owner at this time still? At that time I was, you know, as, as, as we ventured into franchising, that changed a little bit because franchising is completely different business than house cleaning. Even though our business trade name is the same today as it was back in those days, it's we're in a different business today, a different industry. So that's sort of a good segue into franchising because once we had these 12 stores, we started getting a lot of attention. You know, we Some national attention. You know, we were in the Inc. 5000. We had a lot of notoriety from some really nationally well-known publications and people started reaching out to us and they want to know more. You know, And sometimes they wanted to buy us. In some cases, they wanted to fund us. But None of that really interested me at the time because, again, my goal was to go nationwide. And so I had never really been that fond of the idea of franchising. I had known other folks in the industry, the residential cleaning industry, who were franchisees, who were successful, but they hated their franchisor. Like, I'm talking bitter <laughs> hate. And I just said, my gosh, you know, if someone's growing and making money and they're successful and they own their day, your franchisor should be a friend, not a foe. But it, there were a lot of foes in that world. And so I stayed away from it because of that fear. And I met, I still remember it to this day because it was, it was so crazy. I was at a industry conference and sitting at a table, I was taking a break, just checking some email. I was in Vegas. Across the table was this older gentleman and he started asking questions. It was kind of annoying because he just kept asking question after question and I was answering them and I was kind of bragging. You know, like I got 12 stores, uh, we're you know doing well and started it from the ground up. And you know, I was just really kind of bragging on myself without really knowing it. And 
he stopped asking questions finally. And I just, the Southern gentleman in me said, I got to do something besides just sit here. So I said, well, what do you do? And he said, oh, my name's Fred DeLuca. I'm the founder of Subway, you know, Subway with 42,000 locations or whatever across the world. You know, my eyes perked up and I said, oh my gosh, embarrassed. I'm here talking about my 12 stores and you got thousands. At the time, they were the largest franchise brand in the world. My last name, which is, is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you. I'm the other branch. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want to be. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire, well then, join Patreon today. As you guys know by now, this is a brand new Fiverr ad read, as all of them are that I do. And also, as you know, the way we've worked together has basically changed this year. If there's one thing, or maybe two, that we've learned for adapting businesses, having access to the right resources is vital. And it's essential to maintain a strong digital presence. 2020 has been the year of uncertainty. So how can your business plan for the unexpected operate virtually? Finding the right talent can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. It's difficult to keep up with current best practices for maximizing your digital presence. Fiverr's online marketplace connects businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. You know what? My favorite experience with Fiverr is the low, low, low prices for those awesome Fiverr projects. Fiverr's global network of on-demand freelance talent is here to help. Whether you're launching your first business or scaling your current business, in need of extra support to complete a project, or trying to digitally optimize your business, check out Fiverr.com and receive 10% off your first order by using my code millionaire. Find all the digital services you need in one place at F-I-V-E-R-R.com. Code millionaire. Again, that's Fiverr.com. Code millionaire. And I think they still are, which is kind of crazy. Just everyone to think about this. Literally the biggest franchisor in you know, in the world. <laughs> it's bizarre, right? It's crazy. And he started it just like I did, like a lot of people with one store. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely in the top 10. I mean, I guess it depends on the ranking because I was looking at it as we we're talking, but it top 10 in the whole world now, for sure, which is just insane. He sits across the table from me and he starts telling me all these stories and it's just me and him, like and me and Fred DeLuca. I mean, he's talking about franchising and I'm telling him my fears and he's combating those with, you know, how great franchising is. And we became, I wouldn't say best friends, but we became somewhat professional friends. And we would talk outside of that conference. We talked and I just became more and more connected to the idea of building a franchise brand versus the corporate growth that we had before, mainly because of just what I learned from him and what he learned as a Subway franchisor. 
that's what prompted me to sort of detour and pivot, I should say, I guess, and switch from this corporate growth strategy to franchise. And we had all the building blocks. You know, we had the systems. We had something that was different. We had a trademarkable name. We had scalability. We had profitability. You know, we had all the ingredients of a franchise brand. I was just scared to death that we were going to have bad franchisee relations. Or you could have bad spokesmen like Subway with Jared Fogel, that's right? That's true. Introduce you to him, right? No, I never met him. Well, that, that's good. <laughs> that happened shortly after our meeting. Yeah, what year was this? Just again, so we're on the same page. It was around 2010, maybe or so. Yeah, yeah. So you're in your mid-30s. That's what I thought. You know, I was kind of basing on that. I'm like, I think the subway guy got in trouble around that time. Okay. Yeah, we never discussed that. That was sort of taboo. <laughs> good. Just so everyone understands, if you're having a conversation, don't bring up negative stuff. Like, again, I don't think he had gotten in trouble at that point, but it's, again, yeah, understood. <laughs> so once he taught me that franchising can be good and how to be a good franchisor, just we already had the ingredients. So it didn't take a whole lot other than just legally becoming a franchise brand, which was its own process. But we, we sort of pivoted. We switched all of, we sold our corporate stores, all but one, the one in Birmingham we kept, but all the others we sold to individuals to own as franchises. And that was also very helpful. We didn't just start from zero. We didn't, we had 11 franchisees that were very successful because we built those stores that could immediately pay us. So we sold them. Plus we earned, you know, a residual revenue stream from that because of the, the franchise relationship. And then we started to try to sell startup franchise opportunities across the country, which turned out to be very difficult. We didn't really know how to sell a franchise. We sold the corporate stores very quickly and easy because there was like a turnkey solution to profitability. They are almost like an ATM machine, but the startup opportunities were a whole nother beast. Well, real quick, why did you want to sell those stores? Because again, there's some for someone to learn. Like usually I think when I've talked to other franchisees or whatever, like they might keep those 12 stores that you made and then just only sell the model up and going. Was it, did you need capital in order to sell this more or, or just tell us your thought process on why you sold the original 12? That was more Fred's direction. And I learned the hard way as well. And so early on, everyone in the industry told me, you can't be both. You cannot be a house cleaning company anymore and a franchisor because they're two different businesses. And of course, you know, like I told you earlier. Yeah. What are the differences? So everyone understands. Yeah. So franchising is a training and support organization. And so whether you sell burgers or cleaning services, it doesn't really matter what the product or service that you sell, because all you really need to do is train people how to do that and how to make money from that and then support them during the life of the relationship with them. And so it's almost like an educational system where you're just supporting and training at all times. You know, we're not cleaning a house. A lot of the things that we learned owning those stores obviously were very helpful. All those systems and process we talked about before franchisees would execute on. But now all of a sudden, instead of teaching people how to do it, we were paying people to do that before and there were requirements. Whereas a franchisee kind of wants to know why, like, okay, this is how you do it, but why? And then you had to also create rules and process to make sure franchisees actually executed that system. It wasn't as just straightforward as if you didn't do the job as an employee, then we could technically fire you, at least discipline you. That's not necessarily the case in franchising. That person owns that business. And so while there's some legal things that we could explore, that's not something you ever want to do. You really have to teach people how to do those things as a franchisee and why you do those things. And then you have to monitor those systems as well to make sure they're always being executed. It's a whole nother world. And on top of that, you have to lead people differently. As the leader of the organization and the brand, prior to becoming a franchise, I was very 
X's and O oriented. I had to answer every single question about some really small things in some cases, like should we buy another vacuum in Charlotte, North Carolina? I was out of that world and was more into this world where I'm a cheerleader, I'm a brand advocate, I'm selling the brand to as many people as possible so that a franchisee in Charlotte then can earn money from that. You know, So it was the type of people we hired had to be different. We didn't really have anyone internal that were really prepared to be a franchise or support person. And so we had to go find talent to do that. We brought everything in-house. We built our own software. We handle all the marketing for our employees. We do all the branding work for our franchisees, I should say. And so when you do all those things, you got to bring in marketing experts. You got to bring in software engineers. You got to bring in videography folks and design people. We didn't have those people on staff. And so we weren't going to be able to, to be a franchisor and be a house cleaning company. It was just, that just doesn't exist. While most franchisors that you see out there, even Subway, very few corporate stores are owned by really good franchisors. It's just not done. I guess the whole idea, it's not that like it can't be done, but it sounds like to me, the main reason is because of focus. If you're going to focus on building a business in Pensacola, right, with the house cleaning stuff, it's like, well, if you're, and you're trying to sell franchises, you as the owner, like of the business, it's like you have these totally different hats where you're trying to like build a theme and an educational kind of platform, like you're saying, where you're leading certain people to make their own business versus getting in the nitty gritty of a certain market and trying to draw up more business and whatnot. Like it, it just, you only have so much time and it seems like the focus is the main reason that you can't do both. Sure. And let's face it, to grow a franchise brand, you have to sell a franchise to someone. And so you're talking to people in Salt Lake City about a franchise opportunity and you know you need people, you need time to do that. And so if you're worried about what vacuums to buy in Charlotte, meanwhile, someone wants to talk to you about a $150,000 investment in Salt Lake, it's very difficult to do both of those things. And so you're right, focus is critical. And that's just what we decided to do is really focus on being a great franchisor versus a great house cleaning company. And so it was a true pivot, even though from the outside looking in, it looked like everything was the same. Monetarily, how did that help you? Like, I guess you sold those businesses, you got a good amount of proceeds before you started even getting your first franchisees. Because again, this is a cash flow difference too. Yeah. So certainly there was some capital that we received because of that. There was also residual revenue from the royalty stream that came from that. So that was a leg up that most franchisors don't get to experience. Most franchisors either are lacking capital or they're very well capitalized if they're backed by a PE group or something. We were homegrown. We were fortunate to be in that position. Most aren't. On top of that, when we talked to franchise candidates who were interested in opening the franchise in whatever city, when we were able to talk about our decade of experience and owning 12 corporate stores, it was really a validation type tool that let people know that they were getting into business with someone that knew what they were doing. We were very close to the ground floor of the industry. We weren't really far removed. So people like me as the CEO, I can tell you how to do payroll. I can tell you what vacuum cleaners we buy. A lot of CEOs in my position for franchise groups really don't understand the inner workings of their business model because they're just too far removed from it. And are you the only one who really made the swap? Because if you sold your other businesses, right, I guess all those people probably stayed there. You, they just had a new manager, if you will, who bought that business. All the managers stayed with their stores that were acquired. There were a couple of people that stuck around with me that were corporate employees that would help with management, but all the individual store managers stayed with their location. They're still with us today in a lot of cases. So, 
Yeah. And you were in Birmingham at this point. I just want to see again what the life, because this is like that transition when you went to Pensacola and started the business. This is another big transition for, again, thank you for pointing it out. It seems like all the same, but it really is a total different kind of perspective of like what you're doing and your life experience and what's going to happen with business as far as cash flow is going to be different and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you the Birmingham story. As we were growing the corporate footprint, it was farther and farther north of Florida. Pensacola was the farthest south store we had. And so even though I was based there, the travel to Greensboro, North Carolina, which was the farthest north store we had, was very difficult. It was an airplane ride. And so it was just really time consuming, costly. And I knew that the time I thought we were going to keep growing corporate stores, I felt like I needed to be in a major hub so that I could travel more efficiently. And so Atlanta became a pretty clear target. We were already in Birmingham. We were doing well. And my wife said, hey, I'm from Birmingham. It's a great place. Since you know, been, we were engaged at that time, and she said, we should move there. When you have kids, it'll be a great place to raise kids. And so I was really just thinking logistics, cost of living. So we made that decision. As we started franchising... Well, I guess everyone has a question. Was she a former maid? How did you meet her? No, no. No, no, it's, um, that's even... You cleaned her house. You were the guy cleaning her house. No. Okay. It's the true beach story. She's on a vacation and I was the townie who she met. <laughs> so she got lucky or unlucky, however you want to look at it. So. <laughs> yeah, my wife says unlucky every day, so I'm feeling it. Maybe you're just lucky. Where was she from? Just curious, I guess, because that is a vacation spot. So yeah, you were the guy who was in the Pensacola when I guess she came in there. Yeah, she was living in Birmingham and she was just down for a July 4th weekend. And I was, you know, if you've seen those guys that walk the beach with their shirt off and they just assume all the girls are looking at them, that was me and my buddies. So that's literally how we met on the beach. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you assume that all the girls are looking at you, but very few are, right? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you just got lucky, I guess, at one time. Okay, so that's where you met her. And then she said, let's go back to Birmingham. Again, this is 2010, mid-30s, you're in Birmingham and settling before you make the switch to franchising or is like right at that point in time? Yeah, we had not switched to franchising. We were just the corporate store still. We were very close to franchising, just didn't know it. Once we started franchising, Birmingham initially became what I thought was a little bit of a hindrance because when people purchase a franchise from us, from anyone, they typically travel to that market and they meet with leadership and they learn more about the people behind the business, behind the brand. And that's how they make their decision. It's also how we make our decision. You know, we want to make sure that they're who we want to be in business with. And so getting to Birmingham was a little difficult, also very costly. If you were in Southern California to get to Birmingham was a real investment. So that what I thought early on that, you know, I made a mistake because of the location. But looking back on it, it actually has turned out to be a little bit Again, a lot of blessing in disguises in my life, but a blessing in disguise because now when someone visits Birmingham, we know they're serious. Like we know if we were based in Jacksonville or San Diego or Charleston or, you know, a desirable city, a lot of people like to live in, then, you know, if you're visiting Charleston for the, on a, for a Friday meeting with us, then why not go to Charleston? Worst case, you get a fun weekend out of it and it's not a big deal. But when you come to Birmingham, people are in and out of here. There's no touristy destinations. And so it's a business trip. And that tells us that people are serious, number one, but it also lets us know that people are there. They're in it for the right reasons. It's also allowed us to kind of stand out. I mentioned Pensacola being a smaller market and allowed us to really get some media publicity because of that. Birmingham's done a lot different. You know, Birmingham's a little bit larger, but still small. We get a lot of publicity here. Anytime we have growth, anytime we get national recognition, the local media knows about it and we get a lot of buzz because of that. It's been a real crazy experience 
experience to find ourselves here in Birmingham, but a good one as well. Yeah. Again, important. So anyone listening, don't use that as an excuse as far as if you're in a small market, there are advantages like in ones that you found out. And after you say that, it's like, you're right. That does make sense. Like if they have to go out of their way, it puts a little bit more pressure on them. Do they really want to do this? Are they for real? And if they show up, you're like, okay, yeah, these people are willing to go a little bit out of their way. It's still not even a lot because it might be one extra flight, right? But at least it, it shows the initiative of like, okay, they're not here just to have fun. They're here for business. Then do you have your own little office building, not office building, but office suite or I imagine, like I said, you're kind of like the only guy again, it seems like instead of in charge of all these people, again, the people who own who bought your old franchises, of course, I guess that you might talk to them sometimes, but there's a different role for you now. Oh my gosh, it's 180 degrees. Yeah. I mean, it's a dream come true, honestly, today. I mean, we've got 15,000 square feet of space. We have 40 employees working at the home office. We marketing team, a software engineering team, a branding team, a finance team. We've got C-level executives that make day-to-day decisions so that I can do things like this and talk about the brand. We've got a franchise development team that sells franchises you know, across the country to different people. It's an organization that when I look back on my years as here at Two Maids and a Mop is what I dreamed of building. I know it's a kind of an easy thing to say, but it's a dream come true. You know, it's a dream come true that I'm living right now. And honestly, we're just still starting, you know, there's still so much more in front of us. But I guess that's about 10 years later, you know, I, I mean, at this point, you're still like 36. And when you're making that transition, are you still just the guy? Oh, sure. I'm glad you fast forwarded just so everyone knows, because I didn't even know. Now it puts it in perspective, but were you just the only guy in the office now that you said there's 40 plus at the corporate office? When we had our corporate stores, we had 12 stores, right? We had 12 individual store managers. They stayed with their franchise, but we also had three people who managed those store managers. So we called them territory managers. And so those three stuck around with us. Plus I had myself and we had an admin person. So we had five people, really four and a half. One admin person was part-time. So we had four and a half people to manage these early on 12 franchisees. We sold our very first franchise, startup franchise in Tampa, Florida, We had a wonderful couple who are still with us today. They're making a bunch of money and still growing, but they were the first people to take a leap with us to purchase a franchise without having any existing revenue. That was interesting because the guys who bought the existing stores, the corporate stores, didn't really care that much about the support. They just wanted the ATM machine. But the startup franchise in Tampa, all they cared about was the training and support. We had to really fake it till we made it with those guys because four and a half people wasn't a lot of support. (laughs) So we started small for sure when it came to franchising. I imagine, did you even go down there and you maybe put all four people, all five to make sure this first one goes well? The very first six or seven, we were there. Yeah, I imagine. And I guess these new people too, they have a different mindset too. Again, I just want to keep emphasizing that you have to tell everybody, hey, instead of finding customers, our new customers is people who want to open their own potential business who want to get in this, right? Yep. They were like anyone listening to this podcast, they were aspiring entrepreneurs that had a desire, but just didn't know how to do it and kind of didn't want to do what I did, which was do it all by myself and make a bunch of mistakes. They wanted to have... They didn't want to be crying by themselves in a seafood restaurant, calling their dad (laughs) and only have two weeks of money left in the bank. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, no, that makes sense. And so you end up opening how many over the next few years? Like We can kind of fast forward the track of what you went from that first opening to what it is today? Yeah. So we've averaged about 15 new stores, 14 to 15 new stores ever since then. We're at 81. We've got about 10 that are set to open. COVID kind of slowed us down this year. We didn't really want to open during the middle of that. So we've got some folks that hit the kind of pause button, if you'll call it that, that are set to open toward the fourth quarter of this year. So we'll have 
hopefully close to 100 stores early part of next year, 21. But yeah, we opened 14, 15 stores on average a year, all the way from 2015 on. And it's just been a wild ride, man. You know, so many crazy things that, like I said earlier, dreamed about have come true. So many good people that are so much smarter than me have joined the organization, both as a home office employee or a franchisee. The franchisees that are growing with us now know that they're a part of a growing organization that still has so much in front of them. And so there's a really hungry attitude with our franchisees and that's invigorating, you know, and very energizing as well, because now you're, it's not just a franchisee using our support to help them grow, but we're kind of using their energy to help us grow too. That is important. I'm glad you brought that up too. Like I've talked about this in one episode, the energy, like, so I could see when you get new people on there as a franchisor, that re-motivates you. Cause I was going to ask you what keeps motivating you. And the same thing is like, to be honest, I mean, if someone wants to write me a message, it's not going to hurt my feelings, but, or leave me a good five-star review right now on the podcast. But when I get those messages, you know, it motivates me to keep going. Right. And as I imagine as you're getting more franchisees in there, you know, I could definitely see that. Cause again, I was wondering what keeps motivating you to keep going. So for me, it's still the vision that I created many, many years ago. Until we become the largest, fastest growing, most innovative residential cleaning service in America, I don't want to stop. That's a mouthful too. That's a mouthful. <laughs> you said it before, I can tell. I've said it a million times because I believe in it. You know, it's something that I've believed in for a long time and I don't want to stop. You know, I get private equity groups. We've had publicly traded companies reach out to us to acquire us. We're a hot business. And so I'm proud of that. That's pretty exciting to say the least. But until we reach our vision, it's not worth it. You know, just cashing out, it's not worth it. And so I believe that when we reach that mountaintop, when I look back, you know, I'm going to not only have a legacy, but I'm going to have a lot of people whose lives have been changed because of the growth of this company. You know, it all started with one person inside a 250 square foot office space forever ago. And thank you for sharing like a lot of those hiccups, especially in the beginning. I think that's motivating for anyone and then kind of understanding this transition in your business. But what's been the hardest part for you when you transferized to when you went to franchising? Because I don't think I've heard any hiccups. It sounds like it all went well after you went to franchising. Well, yeah, there was like a finding a franchise E was very difficult. Okay. That's what I figured. I figured it's got to be hard because it's a total different list of potential people. Like you have these entrepreneurs, potential entrepreneurs or whatnot, versus again, finding clients whose house needs cleaning. Yeah. So early on, and this happens with a lot of franchisees, it actually happened with Subway as well. Subway's story is they were kind of formed after a lot of success inside the sandwich shop. And so a lot of the customers were doctors. And so he, Fred would reach out to these customers as doctors and say, hey, you want to franchise? You got a bunch of money because you're a doctor. And they did, but turns out doctors aren't the best entrepreneurs. And so he had some tough times early on. Well, the same thing happened with me, even though he told me to stay away from this, I, I couldn't resist myself. And so there was all college buddies or buddies of buddies that would hear about the growth of Two Maids and a Mop and they would reach out once they recognized and heard about us franchising and they wanted to be a part of it and they had money. And so I'm like, Hey, you got money. Let's do this because you're going to follow your money. You're going to work hard if you invest in something. Cause I did, I followed the money and worked hard, but that's not necessarily what we saw early on. A lot of these guys that were really in some cases, close friends of mine, while they had the capital resources, they didn't really have the desire. They didn't have the vision that I had. And it takes more than just money to run a business. And so we made some mistakes early on selecting the wrong franchise candidates. And we've recovered from that. And we learned a lot from that as well. And today, 
it's a whole process. We, there's a qualifying process to it. We don't just sell a franchise to anybody because they have money. There's a lot that goes into the decision and we turn people away, you know, and we did not turn anyone away early on. That was our biggest just learning lesson as a franchisor is that just because someone's got a large bank account, that doesn't mean they're going to be great business owners. So I should have learned that because again, Fred DeLuca told me that would happen, but it, it took living it to, to learn it. So what do you look for now versus like then? Obviously not just the money, but I'm curious maybe somebody wants to be a franchisee and they're like, okay, I, me just having enough money is not it. What are a couple of things? The biggest thing that we've seen is that our most successful franchisees, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but most of them have a, some source of pain in their history. And so whether it's a job they hate, like I hated, a job that makes them travel a lot away from the family, or maybe they've been kind of stuck in middle management for a long time, but there's a source of pain somewhere. Maybe they owned another business and we had some cases where a partner kind of, for the lack of a better word, screwed the other partner and all the hard work was a waste. But there's usually a source of pain in someone's personal or professional life that sticks with them forever. What they do with that pain is important. Not everybody does positive things with that pain, you know, but the ones that overcome that and want to recover from that, those are the people we want as franchise owners. So we kind of look for that. We investigate, we talk about people's personal history, and we try to figure out why you want to own a business beyond the obvious, beyond making just money. If we can find something in their life that says when the going gets rough, when they hit that valley, which they all will, no matter if you're a franchisee or not, when you hit that valley, why are you going to keep going? If you've ever read Simon Sinek's book, It Starts With Why, that's what we look for in a franchisee is what's their why. But then we also want to find people that like process because a, a franchisee is going to have to like process because if they go out there and just act like cowboys, then it's going to disrupt the business model across the network, across the country and, and cause problems. So we look for that. Obviously, the financial side of that, while not as important as some other things, is still very important. And then the last thing we kind of look for is what type of involvement do they want to be? Is this an investment, like a side investment, or they want to be active? We don't necessarily want people to clean houses. That's not what we want. This is a business first, but we do want someone that's going to know the name of their employees, what their payroll is. We, they've got to want to have the time or want to have the energy to learn as much about their business as possible. And that's it may sound kind of obvious, but not everybody wants to own a business and know everything about it. A lot of people just want to make money and they figure if you throw money at it, then more money will come your way. We've seen that's not the case. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for mentioning all that because I definitely agree. You, you want to see someone who has a drive to do it and then also you know, who's going to have the passion. And then the main thing was that you're saying like the systems thing. Yeah, I agree. Like you got to make sure if they don't like systems and they're the franchisee, that's a big deal. So again, I appreciate you sharing all that and sharing your story here today. So I guess kind of in closing, did you have any last words of wisdom to any of the entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs out there listening? Well, I probably have already said this a couple of times. I have to say it because I think it's the most important thing when I look at my own success, the most critical point in my life was when I realized that I needed a vision for my future. And so whether you're starting a family, whether you're going to college, whether you're starting a business or whether you're already in a business, it's important. It's almost vital that you understand where you're going and how it's, what it's going to take to get there. And that where you're going has to be important to you. You have to believe in it and it's got to be all encompassing. Like you can't just say words, print them on a piece of paper and put them in a picture frame in the lobby and let people walk by it and say, that's our vision for the future. You've got to go all in like I have, like a lot of people who've had success in, in business have. And if you truly believe in those words, then you're going to figure it out. You're going to win the marathon. You may not win the sprint, probably lose a lot of sprints in fact, but you'll always win the marathon if that vision means everything to you. 
Well, thanks again for coming on. And I guess one other question before we get off. Are you related to the two guys moving company? No. Two guys in a truck? <laughs> They're great people, though. We know them very well. They've spoke at some of our conferences with our franchisees. They've got a, a heck of a brand themselves. So we're glad to be closely connected, but we are not connected. Yeah, I just brought that up because we were joking around even before it started. Like, so there are two men in a truck. That's episode 153. I interviewed the founder there. So if anyone wants to check that out after this episode, it's just funny how closely related your names are. And I guess you said y'all just met randomly and like, hey, I did not copy your name. I swear. It's just like, you know, you just had two maids in a mop versus two men in a truck. It's pretty close. So I just thought that was funny. Yeah, it is. Well, great. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story, Ron. And we definitely appreciate it. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure, and I hope someone got some value out of it. It's a lot of fun. So thanks for the invite, Austin, and hopefully we can talk again down the road. Hey there, Millionaire Interviews listener. Even though you're probably alone right now while listening to this podcast, know that at this very second, you're actually listening with thousands of other listeners all around the globe. And if you'd like to connect with those listeners all around the globe, or maybe you want to ask one of our guests a question about their episode, well, then check out our Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast. Hasta luego, baby. Money, 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 money. No, no, the good part, man. That is a good part. Money! I kill for that money, man. Almighty dollar. All right, Hollywood.